If you want to follow along, you can turn to page 11 on your workbooks. And before I read some of our passage, I just want to preface. Hopefully yesterday, kind of what you heard is how to lament and sorrow, ways to be vulnerable with the Lord so you receive His care. And that strengthens us to give care to others. Today's going to be a little bit more, how do we give care to others? But I have that uh, verses, again, from 2 Corinthians about how God comforts us so that we can comfort others. All right? I'm going to read just a couple of verses of our passage, and then we'll pray, and then I'm going to go through the other verses as I teach. Okay? So this is the first part of Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Let's pray. Lord, your word is revelation. It's authoritative, it's instructional, it's life. Help us, Lord, to hear your word this morning. Give me grace as I talk about it, Lord, and give us grace as we listen. In your name I pray. Amen. So the lawyer, the teacher, the religious person, simply asks a question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? In our language, what he's asking is, what do I have to do to be saved? What little do I have to do to go to heaven? Okay? And Jesus says, well, how does the law read? And we read it. Love the Lord thy God with all the heart and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, says to him, essentially, if you do this, you will live. In our vernacular, again, if we ask Jesus what I must do to be saved, and he said, well, how do you read? He said, well, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. His response would be something like this. Well, if you actually do that, you would be becoming alive and actually showing that you love your neighbor. It wouldn't just be this little thing that you kind of thought of over here. When Jesus says, do this and you will live, he's actually expanding this fellow's heart and making him think following the law is much bigger than what you have to do to be saved, okay? And so the next verse, he says this. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I would challenge you to look in the Gospels. When people challenge Jesus, it's not really too smart, okay? See, Jesus is saying, actually, if you're living the law, then you're going to be coming alive and loving others. And he's like, he wants to marginalize it and make it smaller. And he says, so who is my neighbor? Now, that was a popular debate in their day. This word neighbor was a big word, all right? And this is what um, Henry Burton says. To the Jews, the broadest definition of neighbor were members of the same religious community. But if the Jew could not erase this broad word from the pages of the law, he could narrow and emasculate its meaning by an interpretation of his own. And this they had done, making this divine word almost of none effect by their tradition. To the Jewish mind, neighbor was simply Jew spelt large. The only neighborhood they recognized was the narrow neighborhood of Hebrew speech and Hebrew sympathies. 
Who is your neighbor was supposed to open us up so that we were looking around to see who we would care for. They had made, through their law, the word neighbor really, really small. In our vernacular, our neighbor would be the person in our small group. Kind of the easiest person to care for was now their definition of neighbor. Okay? So then, um, Jesus is going to tell them a story, a parable. And I want you to know that parable is to provoke, is to help them really think about this word neighbor. So the text goes on and says, Jesus took up the question. And he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. All right, so Jesus is going to answer the question about who is your neighbor. He's going to tell them a story. And what he chose as the background of the story, that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles, and it was known as the Bloody Way. He chooses the most dangerous place as a setting for his story. All right? And then he goes on, and he says, a priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, the priests in that day were affluent. A priest most likely would have been traveling on a horse and had an entourage. If I said to you, Bill Gates went across town, Oprah Winfrey went across town, what would you think? A helicopter, a limousine, a jet. So when he said a priest went down this 70-mile journey, they would be thinking he had resources, okay? They were an elite class. What it implies is he actually had resources to help the wounded man that he didn't use. But something that's even more important, the priest, because of his law, could not get any closer than six feet to someone who was dead. You know how Jesus says he's half dead? That means you would actually would have had to get close enough to see if he was fully dead or not. But because his law and the priest said he couldn't get closer than six feet, he had to pass by. He couldn't even investigate if this person was dead. And then in their law, the, um, the commandment to not be defiled, to not get close to a dead person, was unconditional. The law to care about your neighbor was conditional. What I want you to see is the whole way they were doing their faith, it was bringing them some safety from not getting involved in any kind of mess. The leader in their faith could not even get close enough to the dead man to see if he needed help, okay? <coughs> Passage goes on. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The hearers of the parable would assume one was following the other. The story, the mood of the story, kind of indicates that. And the road was like a road in Kansas. If there was a big entourage in front of you, you would have seen it. And what did Jesus say about the, um, the uh, Levite and the priests, all right, and other places? They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they both fall into a ditch. What Jesus is doing here in telling this story to confront these people and realize Jesus is really convicting them, or at least wanting to, He's saying the first guy, who's the leader, couldn't get close to the dead man. The second guy could have helped him, but he was following the person ahead of him. 
And what Jesus is saying is the whole way you're doing faith is leading you away from actually caring about people. Okay? And so then the passage picks up and he says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw him, he had compassion. There's a natural progression. The priest sees, the Levite gets near, the Samaritan sees, stops, and cares. And I think you all know this, the Samaritan was the hated enemy. They prayed regularly that the Samaritans would not be partakers of eternal life. A good Samaritan is like a kind Yankee, right? <laughs> it's an oxymoron. <laughs> So then it says, he went over to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, binding up wounds. Does that recall anything? That's Old Testament imagery, okay? Pouring on olive oil and wine. Yesterday we looked at uh, Psalm 62 and I talked about the word pour. That's a word of worship. Oil and wine, they were healing remedies, but they were also used in cultic worship. You see what Jesus is doing here? The true worshiper, the real worshiper, is the one who has a heart to care about the wounded man. And guys, I even want to bring you to like Romans 12.1. We know Romans 1 through 11, beautiful, beautiful treaty on theology. Justification and sanctification by faith. It's all a gift. And if we actually believe that, what will we do? we will present our living bodies as a sacrifice. At about verses 5 through 8 in Romans 12, Paul gives 15 imperative commands. You know them. We talked about it yesterday. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Show hospitality. Nowhere else in all his writing does he give a rapid-fire amount of imperative commands. And what he's saying is, if you really get all this stuff, then, then your body, the way you live, will be a living sacrifice. And this is what Jesus is doing here. In this parable, he's saying the true worshiper is the one who gets near and cares. All right? And it goes on, it says, he put him on his own animal, bought him to an inn, and took care of him. Own animal is not ordinary language. It's, it's implying that he did something extraordinary. When I teach this in class, and I talk about how, like, the Beeson student went across town, like he's in his 2000 Honda Accord, right? But he puts the wounded man in his Honda Accord where the rich people could have just hired someone to take care of him and they weren't helping. And what he's showing is this good Samaritan, the little he has, he's using it to take care of the wounded man. And it says the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I'll come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. The wounded man doesn't have any money. He's been robbed. He can't pay the debt. So the Samaritan gives even more in his caring for the wounded man. So the text goes on. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus asked the religious people that question. And then they said, the one who showed mercy to him and he said that Jesus told him, go and do the same. The lawyer wanted a simple definition. Who's my neighbor? What little do I have to do to prove that I'm a believer? 
And Jesus totally explodes that. And he's saying the question you should be asking is how do I love my neighbor, whoever they are? Whoever in my world God is asking me to care about, how do I become the type of person that wants to care about my neighbor? All right? And I would say, and I'll tie this into what we talked about yesterday, the person with a buoyant heart, a person who's walked with the Lord where his flesh has gotten smaller, and Christ in him is large enough, is the person who's like the Good Samaritan. He has the courage to see his neighbor. He has the compassion to move towards his neighbor. And he has the endurance to stay with his neighbor. Courage, compassion, and endurance. If we're taking our hearts to the Lord, and we're lamenting, and we're sorrowing, and we're walking with him relationally, I believe he fills us in a way that we have courage, we have compassion, and we have endurance. And that's what helps us move towards those who are suffering. So if you turn over to the page, to the top of page 12, this is the question I'm going to answer with the rest of our time. How do trials form us into a buoyant heart? <clears throat> the energy of our flesh is self-righteousness. The more we stand in the world through our own effort, the less we will care about others. We cannot mortify, crucify, or dislodge our fleshly commitment to ourselves without God's help. Trials are a gift to surface our selfishness. So we turn toward the Lord and receive His sustaining love and become like Him. What I want you to think is actually whatever trials bring up inside of us, the impurities of our heart, trials, the intensity of it, bring things up in our heart that we can bring to the Lord so He changes us in a way that we become more loving people. So how do we learn to recognize our neighbor? Seeing comes from courage. To some degree, you're going to help another person to the point at which you have received the Lord's help. In my counseling training, one of the first things I had to do was counsel with one, another person one time a week, and I had to do group counseling. So the first uh, appointment I did in my very first semester, when I met with the person who was going to counsel me, they acted like a teenager who had anorexia, and I actually had to counsel them, and we audio taped it, and then we listened to it next session, okay? And so, I, so this person starts acting like they have anorexia, and I'm trying to counsel them. And up to that point in my life, all I knew was if you work hard, things will go well. That's what I believed, okay? So I was trying to push this teenage girl, and I'm a guy who's like 29 point, on how to work hard so she could get anorexia. And as I listened to that tape, that audio tape, at the end of it I thought, oh my gosh, the teenager is like a scared cat and I'm like a, a man with a baseball bat, I'm like you are going to prove that I can help you. That's how selfish and self-oriented I was. I didn't see it, listening to the audio tape, helping to see it, right? Because, see, I was so self-protective. I had so much pain that I was hiding, and I was trying to make everything right through my own effort, and then I was trying to get people to do the, the same thing. Guys, what the gospel's supposed to do is tear down our self-protection. I simply gave you one way to do that, to start praying more honestly with the Lord. 
Because we, I, I've been a counselor for three decades, and what most people are talking about are relational issues. You know why it's good to be part of the body, why it's supposed to be good? Because it's going to help you recognize how unloving you are, okay? And as you stay in community with others, hopefully that's forming us into more loving people. But I think we first need the courage to be more honest with the Lord, as I talked about, so that He's diminishing our self-protection, and then we have more courage to move towards others, okay? The Good Samaritan, he, he helped a man on a very dangerous road. Do you know on that day, there was a saying, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you actually were associated with someone who got injured and a family member got, like knew that you were, you may not have injured them, but if you were just associated with it, you could be, your life could be taken. He risked a lot of danger by simply helping. And I think in Christian community, we too often reinforce self-protection, right? Instead of kind of helping each other in loving ways, see that oftentimes we're not living the gospel and we need help. And I simply gave you one way to do that, to just start being more honest with the Lord so you see where you need His ministry, okay? So I say this, um, the bullet, first bullet point, courage grows as we let suffering dislodge our commitment to self. Hurting through trials softens our self-protection. Let me give you an example. Probably the biggest wound for me growing up was the financial chaos in the home I grew up in. I told you I went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. You know why? Because it's a federal service academy and the government pays for it. I was like, I've got to take care of myself. I worked really hard to get a scholarship. I actually didn't have high enough SATs or I wasn't a good enough athlete to get a real scholarship. So I got a kind of scholarship where you go to a place and they pay you to go there and then you serve them for five years in the Merchant Marine. You know, I didn't like the Merchant Marine. I stayed in school because I had too much pride to leave. And then when I graduated, I started saving a bunch of money because I knew I wanted to be in ministry and we couldn't have loans. So we only had one car, and my wife and I shared a car because I was like, we're not taking any loans, because I was so financially afraid. Then we get our first position in ministry, and after a year and a half, I have to go part-time because the church was having financial problems, and they never should have hired me full-time. I'm 32 years old, just bought a house, just had our second child, and I'm thrust into financial chaos that I've tried it really hard for my own effort to avoid my whole life. And you know what I saw about my desire to protect myself financially? It wasn't that smart. God brought me back to a place of self-protection. And now I had to stay in fellowship with this church because I stayed there. And the whole reason I started my nonprofit counseling ministry because I need another half a salary. And do you know what the Lord did? I was too scared to go in that direction because I wanted the church to take care of me and I didn't have gifts. And so now I had to stay with them and confront my self-righteousness because how could I judge a church that made a mistake unless I was perfect, right? So I had to suffer years loving them and then doing two jobs at once. And do you know what? It's the greatest gift I ever got, all right? The Lord brought me back to an area of self-protection it made me confronted as an adult and move in a different direction than depending on myself. I told you about my wife's breast cancer. 
Early in our marriage, she told me this fear how she wasn't going to live until she, she wasn't going to live past 30, okay? And she kept telling me if she, li she lives to 30, we're gonna, I'm going to have to throw a surprise party, which I actually did, but it was two days after her 30th birthday, and so she was mad at me for two days. It was so good. It's so good, right? But she was afraid that she was going to have every major disease, and when she got breast cancer, do you know what she had to face? I can't protect myself. Only God can protect me. And he will let us go through difficulty. What I want you to see is as we suffer things that expose our self-protection, as we go to the Lord, now we don't have to protect ourselves anymore. We have the courage to help others. Okay? So I simply say, if we welcome the Lord past our defenses, we develop the eyesight to see beyond hindrances to caring for others. It's the middle of page two there. All right, so number two on page 12. How do we move toward our neighbor? Involvement comes through strengthened compassion. The priest couldn't get near. The Levite could have cared, but followed the priest, the hated enemy. The Samaritan was moved and worshipped by caring for a wounded man. Compassion Guys, there's a difference between empathy and compassion. Empathy is feeling with someone. Compassion is a demonstration of love where you alleviate suffering. You actually do something, right? So let me give you an example because oftentimes we don't have the courage, I mean the compassion to actually do something. Just an example from my counseling. I'm meeting with a woman from, sorry, PCA Church, Huffman, um, at Birmingham. And her husband has careened his life. The sessions give her permission to divorce him. He did a whole lot of things, and one of those things was ruin the family financially. So this woman divorces him and moves into an apartment with her three children in the middle of a fluent Birmingham and doesn't have much money. And as I'm meeting with her, she's telling me how she keeps inviting, gets invited by the women in the church to go to the girls' night out. And she said, I would love to go. I can't afford dinner and I can't afford babysitting. And she keeps telling me some of the loneliness she's feeling and how people aren't reaching out. And so I ask for her permission and she signs a form for me to talk to the women's ministry coordinator. So I call her and I talk to her about things. And as we talk, I say, if you want to invite her to the girls' night out, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a really reliable babysitter I want you to pay for that babysitter to go meet the children and meet the mom so she feels safe, like she knows that babysitter. And then I want you to pay that babysitter to babysit those children. And then I want you to tell that woman that you're going to pay for her meal and then invite her. See, that's a compassion. They actually see what's happened to this woman. Remember how I said the gospel is supposed to move us into sin, suffering, and death and not away from it? They didn't have the compassion to really connect with her suffering and actually do something to help her with it, okay? I want you to look, I challenge you to look in the Gospels, do a word search where compassion comes up and you know what you're gonna see? Jesus had compassion and he did things. Matthew 14, 14, he stepped from the boat, had compassion on them and healed the sick. Matthew 15, 32, I have compassion for these people. They've not eaten for three days. They've got nothing to eat. And he feeds 4,000 people. He had compassion and he fed. I have compassion on these people. Mark 6.34. They're like a shepherd 
They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he taught them. He had compassion and he taught. Luke 7.13. He saw her and felt compassion. Do not weep. He felt compassion and he comforted. Now I challenged you a little bit yesterday about sorrowing, about simply talking about the things that are difficult in your life and letting people know about it. Whenever people ask me, how are you doing? I'm like, well, you know I'm a counselor, right? <laughs> like, this could be a long answer. Right? <laughs> or, like, we, um, we moved in the middle of our time up in Birmingham. We moved from this one neighborhood that wasn't nice to a newer neighborhood, and I never lived in a nice neighborhood, and I felt a little guilty, and everyone would be like, aren't you excited? And I thought, well, first of all, excitement isn't in my vocabulary, you know? I'm not that kind of person. But I thought, actually, I'm kind of afraid. <laughs> like, I don't know about this mortgage. And I feel a little bit weird being in a nice area. I never lived there, right? There were things in my heart that I needed help with, right? So I simply wanted you to be able to become a child again. What do children do when they're hurting? They run to their parents, right? I remember my oldest daughter, when she was about four or five, one night, um, she was in the... And her bedroom was right next to our bedroom, and I heard some muffling and some fat sounds, and finally I get out of bed, and I go to help her, and it's like 1 a.m. or something, and she goes, Daddy, I'm not feeling well, but I didn't want to wake you up. As you realize that a year before that, if she was feeling sick, she would have just cried, and we would have gotten up and moved towards her. Her sinful, fleshly nature was already telling her, you've got to take care of everybody. You can't vulnerably have me, all right? I want us to simply think about, as a community, I want you to think about maybe working at sharing sorrows and just telling each other, I hear what you're saying, I want to help you carry that. Because the more our hearts are opening and we're sharing each other's burdens, and now we're more open to the Lord, now He's working inside of us and we have more compassion because we've received compassion, all right? So, um, courage, compassion, and the last thing is endurance. How do we stay with our neighbor? Endurance is fueled by settled hope. This is uh, page 12 again. The first three scenes are dominated by robbers, priests, and the Levite. The actions are characterized by the verbs come, do, and go. Each of them comes, does something, and leaves. The Samaritan who contrary to all expectation does not leave, and he breaks the pattern. Everyone comes and does, he comes and stays and stays and stays. From then on, each line describes an action of the part of the Samaritan in the service of the wounded man. The list is long because the lone Samaritan must make up for the actions of everyone else. I talked about a buoyant heart, okay? Our hearts, our inner person, are supposed to be buoyant. We're not simply supposed to be so weighed down by uh, anger, resentment, bitterness. And guys, we're in a fallen world with a fallen nature. If somehow we're not turning over those things to the Lord, and He's not helping us the way I've tried to articulate, then we're not going to have the buoyancy to care for others. Again, I'll just give you a simple example. I told you a little bit about my background. I really wanted to be an involved dad, okay? So when I came home from work and our kids were little, like two, four, and six, they would really want to wrestle and play with dad, and mom would want them to, right? And um, I created this game. You see, 
I was kind of still not too secure in my masculinity. So I created this game, I'm the man, right? And I would have pillows in me, and they would have to try to run and push me over. But see, I'm the man, and they couldn't do it, right? It's a little funny. Come on, girl. <laughs> um, but I would start playing with them, and then I'd be like, oh, I gotta go check an email. And I would get up, and I would start walking to check email. And they'd be like, you don't have to check email, you just left the office. Do you see my flesh? was pulling me away from being a caring dad. And it was a lot harder than I ever dreamed it would be, okay? I thought simply because I wanted to do it, I would be able to do it. But to have real endurance, to have real patience, I had to keep practicing. I had to keep staying at it, okay? And then let me tell you a different story. This is years later, when the girls are older. I counseled late one night, and I got home, and it was January 4th. No, January 3rd, and that's still when they played the national championship close to New Year's Eve, and it was when Saban won his first national championship with LSU. And uh, I get home, and everyone's kind of, because I count so late, they've eaten dinner, they're going to bed, and I'm like, oh my gosh, college football with no interruptions. And then I just went down to the basement, I got my beverage of choice, and I'm like, I'm just going to watch some college football. And about 20 minutes later, I hear four feet come down the stairs. And it's my two older daughters, and they say, Daddy, tomorrow is Elisa's birthday, and we wanted to decorate the whole house, but we need your help. <laughs> Can I tell you what happened a lot of times when that happened before that moment? And I actually didn't even pay attention. I went upstairs, and we spent about 40 minutes decorating the whole house. And as I went back down the stairs, I felt tears that God had been working in my heart and giving me the endurance. I had a hard day at work and something was still alive in me to serve my daughters. And guys, that's not because I'm a really good person. It's because I kept coming back to the Lord again and again and again after I had messed up as a dad, all right? And went to him. What you have to learn how to do is what I would call here an eschatological affirmation. I say, endurance grows as we let trials dislodge our self-absorption, okay? You guys, because too often we're trying to fulfill our own needs and we're trying to make our life work, and it's all focused on us, we don't even hear when the Lord's saying, well done, because we think we're supposed to be good people. I, I hope somehow, in the way I've taught, that you've come to accept in a little fresher way that none of us are really good, okay? We're, we're just not great people. We're not, okay? But I want to give you an image and an illustration. For those of you who've had children, you'll connect with it. When your first child took their first stumbling step, what did you and your spouse do? Did you share high fives? Did you get excited? Our child's walking, right? Now, if that child was verbal, what they should really say is, mom and dad, relax, okay? It was a half of a step. All right? It's no big deal. I've not really walked. I've not run. I'm not fully developed. Why don't you just relax? Okay? What if I said, when it comes to biblical love, like the Good Samaritan demonstrated, God sees us morally the way we see children physically. See, if you're supposed to be better than you are, then any good thing you do is not too good. But if somehow you walk with the Lord and you accept it, I don't mean beating yourself up. I don't mean shaming yourself. 
I just mean accepting. Like, I, I told you how serious I am and how I watched my wife sink under my seriousness for the first eight to ten years of her marriage. And God gave us resurrection. Because I, I would look over to a reading list and there's no C.S. Lewis and I thought, how am I going to live with this chick for 40 years, okay? <laughs> right? But we kept bringing that brokenness to the Lord and He kept filling us with His love. An eschatological affirmation is that you can actually see the beauty in your character even though you can see the sin in your character. I want you to think about Hebrews 11. All these faithful ones died without receiving what God promised. All these faithful ones died still wanting more. Not only in the way they loved, but in every area. Okay? But they welcomed God's promises from a distance. Because do you know it says? If our hope in Christ is for this world only, we are to be pitied more than anyone. You're supposed to be able to look at your life and look at your character and see where there's lack and not be unnerved. Okay? These faithful ones died without receiving what was promised, but they welcomed those promises and what they thought is, I'm on the way there. What I want you to be able to do is look back and see how far you've come. When I first got married and I realized that love is patient, I thought, ooh, I don't know much about love. Okay? After 32 years, can I tell you how much more patient I am? There's no comparison. But you know what I can see? <laughs> I still have a long way to go. Any point we can look back and we should celebrate how far we've come. And when we look forward, we should long for more. We shouldn't be ashamed that we haven't arrived, okay? We should want more. So an eschatological affirmation is God seeing you right where you are and affirming the way you love. And you're standing up and saying, look at me, I'm actually becoming more like Jesus. But instead, we see what's not good, and we tell ourselves we've not arrived. And just one key point from neuroscience, your brain automatically attaches to what's negative, and it repels what's positive. You actually have to think of what's positive for 15 seconds to attach to it. Remember I told you about playing with my young girls? One time we had a great time and I wasn't frustrated and I was heading to the dinner table and I was like, well, how come I never remember these times when we have fun? How come late at night I'm obsessing over the ways I was a bad dad? And the Lord said, there's many of good moments you attach to because you don't hear me affirming you in the middle of your character. So I want you to think, learn how to hear the Lord saying, well done. I would promise every one of you because you've not accepted in a restful way how bad you are, you don't hear the Lord telling you every day how much He loves you and how well done you have done. I pray in a new way that you could hear the Lord saying, well done with regularity, so then you could live it out. Okay? I hope my words have helped you think about how to let go of self-protection so we grow courage. How to let go of self-reliance so we develop compassion. And how to let go self-absorption so we have endurance. And like the Good Samaritan, we can see our neighbors who are hurting, we can move towards them, and we can stay with them. Let me pray. Lord, I just pray for us. Lord, our heart really, you're in us, Father. We want to love. We want to do the things we ought to do. 
and we don't want to do the things we shouldn't do. That is what's truest about us, because you're in us, Lord. I pray where we're demonstrating your character and your love, and you're saying, well done. Lord, help us to hear that today in a new and fresh way, and give us the courage, the compassion, and the endurance to genuinely care about our neighbor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you would all stand with me. Sing for the beauty of the earth.
quick reminders before the benediction and lunch here. Everybody just bring your stuff and pull it together. Stay as long as you like. Please make sure you return your keys to the front office. Tumblers in the back, workbooks in the back are all up for grabs. Any questions or comments before we go? Okay, please receive the benediction. May the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ go with you this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen.